It's such a pleasure for um, me to be back just to uh, preach a couple of final sermons here before we leave. And um, I'm really looking forward to teaching this morning from Exodus 18. I think it's got some unexpected riches for us. Um, but before we get there... Oh. Um, so this is obviously impromptu, but it, we would be remiss to... Thank you. <laughs> We'd be off track to not... Uh, we don't need to applaud. But we all so appreciate what God's done through you over the years. And we're so excited about what God's doing in Oxford and what he's going to do through you. And you just need to know that. I mean, it's as exciting as anything that's happening in Grand Rapids. We're looking to Oxford and now we'll know that there's a man there that's humble, broken among many people, I'm sure, that are humble and broken in Oxford, that are seeking God's face and asking God to move, and we just couldn't be more privileged to be partnered with you. Thanks, yeah. Are we on the same page? You're going to make me cry. <laughs> All right. But let's have a stiff upper lip here and try and stay with it. Okay, so before we get into our uh, text for today, though, I want to kind of in habitual style, for those of you who've um, got used to the way that I um, handle the Bible text, I want to set context here and make sure that we're looking at this passage uh, through the lens uh, that Moses was looking at it as he wrote it. Uh, Right before uh, Exodus 18, we have uh, Exodus 17, and there we found that story that Rod preached on for us a couple of weeks ago of the Israelites, you remember, when they get attacked by the Amalekites. And uh, you might remember the situation. Uh, Moses sends Joshua out onto the battlefield as uh, the leader of the Israelite army, and um, he goes up into the surrounding hills with Aaron and Hur and with the staff of God in his hands to pray Perhaps you can picture the scene. I think it's helpful to do that, isn't it? Kind of close your eyes and think what this would have looked like. But we need to be a bit careful as we do that, um, because that army that we're picturing down there on the plain uh, isn't a body of well-drilled Korea soldiers, uh, is it? Just over a month before the events of that chapter, they were slaves in Egypt. So we're looking at a bunch of farmhands, stonecutters, brickmakers, Uh, with no experience with swords and spears, and their commander, Joshua, uh, had never been to school as an infantry tactician. From the human perspective, I guess we would say, the historians would say, Moses was the main reason why these guys weren't still serving as slaves in the quarries of Egypt, and Moses has gone up the mountain. So from that human perspective, uh, this has all the makings of a military disaster, doesn't it? But that's exactly the perspective that the text in Exodus 17 exists to completely overthrow. You see, God wants to show his people uh, in that time, and he still wants to show us now, uh, that something more than the bare economics of who is and who isn't the strongest, of who is and who isn't the best prepared, decides the fate of people who trust in him. God wants to show us, actually, that trusting him decides the fate of people who trust in him. Uh, And so the stage is set for this strange dance that plays out on the mountaintop when Moses holds up his hands in prayer. You'll remember the battle favors the Israelites and the Amalekites are pushed back. And then when Moses grows weary, 
and he lowers his hands, well then the battle favours the Amalekites and the Israelites are pushed back. Trusting God expressed in prayer is the thing that determines the outcome of this fight. But it leaves us with a slightly ambiguous portrait of Moses, doesn't it? Not quite the thing that you would expect if you were maybe writing this story yourself. You see, on the one hand, Moses seems to be this almost kind of supernatural leader. He stands between God and the people interceding on their behalf. He raises his hands in prayer and the battle turns. But on the other hand, he's also painfully human, isn't he? It tells us actually in the text of uh, chapter 17 that when he grows weary, he actually needs help to find somewhere to sit. He lowers his hands and the battle turns against his people. So what's going on? Well, the answer, I think, is that God is teaching us. He's teaching us through a story. You see, God has always known, I think, that just handing us a textbook entitled Everything You Need to Know About You and Me uh, was never going to really cut it. We'd forget it just as quickly as we forget all the other textbooks that we've read, right? I'm looking at all of you who are just sitting your finals at the moment. Uh, And just think how exclusive it would be if it was that kind of academic deal. And so time again, throughout the Bible, God chooses to show us the truth about himself uh, and about ourselves by acting it out. And that's what's happening here in this story. Uh, Moses, weak, fallible, human Moses, is given the leading role in a kind of amateur dramatic production of what God intends to do for real in the end. He plays the part of this supernatural mediator who raises his hands and turns the tide of the battle because God knows that that's exactly the kind of mediator all of us need and that he is planning to send one day. Moses acting it out gets us ready for the real thing when he comes. But despite the accuracy of the portrayal, Moses is only ever an actor in a role, isn't he? And his frailty can't help but show through. And because of that, uh, at the same time then, Moses teaches us uh, not just about the saviour that God planned for the future, he also teaches us about our own needs in the present. In his weakness, we see our weakness. Uh, And in God's provision for his weakness, we see God's provision for ours. So that's the key, I guess, to understanding Uh, what happens in our chapter today as well. Just like the story of Moses on the mountaintop, our text today contains lessons about what God planned to do in the far future, but has now done in Jesus. But there are also lessons in the text about us. And I hope we'll find both of those threads encouraging and challenging as we dig into them together today. So let's stand now, um, uh, bearing in mind that this book that we hold is the very word of God Uh, If any of you don't have a Bible in your hands, don't feel ashamed to raise a mitt and uh, someone will um, uh, bring a Bible to you from the back. And turn with me to Exodus chapter 18. And uh, with your permission, I'm going to read the whole thing, even though it's quite a long passage. So Exodus chapter 18, starting at verse 1. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, father-in-law of Moses heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer. 
For he said, my father's God was my helper and he saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. And Jethro uh, had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they greeted each other and then went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. And he said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me. And I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. And Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens and have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. And if you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and he did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens, and they served as judges for the people at all times. The most difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. And then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Okay, so do take a seat and let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this little glimpse into the life of your uh, people on their journey out of Egypt uh, towards Mount Sinai. Uh, but Lord God, we know that you are a God who uh, never does anything without a purpose. This isn't just a little kind of uh, random domestic vignette here. Uh, this is something which is uh, full of meaning, full of life for us if we have ears to hear it. And we pray then 
that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit to help us hear it and hear it not just that it goes in one ear and out the other, but God, that it would touch our souls, that it would cause us to decide to be different, um, that it would comfort us and strengthen us, that it would lead us more into your uh, good and perfect will for our lives. Lord, that's not something that we can do alone, uh, but we are your sheep. We're listening for your voice. We're waiting here for you with our hands lifted high, uh, expectant that you will move the mountains, that you will uh, shape us uh, as we depend on you. So God, please do that work among us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, as we worked our way through the passage, I I imagine that you um, kind of got... Uh, roughly the the lie of the land here. This uh, text divides into two halves. The first half runs from verse 1 to verse 12, and that tells the story really of Jethro being kind of invited and arriving uh, within the camp of the Israelites. And then the second half, going from verse 13 to verse 27 there, records the advice that Jethro gave when he then saw what it was that Moses was doing. And our message this morning is just going to follow those two halves in order. Um, The physical setting for the events is this place, Rephidim, which we're going to try to pop up on the screen here. Um, So let me just show you. This is the Sinai Peninsula, which should be familiar to you. And Rephidim is down here somewhere. See it? Actually, let's just do that differently. Now you see it. All right. Um, We don't know exactly where. Sinai is somewhere in the hills. Um, So that's basically what we're looking at. We'll leave that map up on the screen so you can see roughly what it is that we're dealing with. Um, that's where the battle with the Amalekites took place, Rephidim. Um, uh, we don't uh, hear about the Israelites moving on from that spot until the beginning of chapter 19, uh, when they set out on this last short leg of their journey um, to Sinai itself. So in chapter 18, I guess we've got to picture the Israelites still weary, um, but probably elated after this first military victory that they've scored over the Amalekites, camped around the newly built altar called the Lord is my banner. You remember that? Uh, And um, uh, in that situation, messengers arrive. Maybe a trumpet is sounded and they see a a small caravan of people coming towards them uh, from the east. It's Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, coming uh, with uh, Moses' wife and his two sons. Now, at first glance, it's not completely clear what's going on here, is it? Verse 2, if you are following along in your Bibles, uh, tells us that Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah, and that Jethro had received her. And that doesn't sound too good, does it? And you know, we're looking here at the kind of terminal breakdown of Moses' marriage. Certainly there are places in our English Bible translations where that phrase, sending away, is used as a euphemism for divorce. Um, but actually, when you get back into the Hebrew underneath that, it's not actually that word that's being used here. And divorce between Moses and his wife doesn't really fit the context of the passage either, as we'll see. When Jethro finally uh, arrives, there doesn't seem to be any kind of domestic angst in uh, Moses and Jethro's discussion. Um, At the end of the passage as well, in verse 27, the implication is that Jethro goes on home to Midian, but Zipporah and her sons remain with Moses. Uh, We also know, if you go back into Exodus chapter 4, that Moses didn't leave Zipporah and the boys uh, behind in Midian, Uh, so that he could go off and kind of do the dangerous stuff in Egypt alone. He actually took them with him. Uh, So probably our best scenario for all of this is that Moses, Zipporah, 
Gershom and Eliezer all traveled together to Egypt when Moses went down there, that all four of them witnessed the plagues of Egypt, uh, that all four of them crossed the Reed Sea together with the rest of the Israelites. And it was then, uh, after they crossed over into the desert, that Moses then sent them off to Jethro to take the message which is referred to in verse 1 of our chapter. The message about everything that had happened to them uh, and um, how God had blessed the Israelites by setting them free from Egypt. So that covers Zipporah and her sons, but what about her father, Jethro? Well, verse 1 introduces him to us in much the same way that he's introduced actually earlier in the book in chapter 2 as the priest of Midian. Now, Midian, of course, is the land of Moses' exile. Uh, For 40 years, he raises sheep there um, uh, across the the Gulf of Aqaba there. We can again put that on the the diagram. This is Midian here. Whoops, lost our nice yellow color. Now we've lost it all. Diagram crisis. Midian is there. Okay, so that's where Moses is hanging out for those 40 years when he flees from Egypt. Um. But it wasn't exactly a hotbed of devotion to the God of Israel over there, was it? (laughs) Uh, When we reach the the book of Numbers, we find that the Midianites are teaming up with their northern neighbours, the Moabites, to try to literally wipe Israel off the map. Uh, And Jethro, it turns out, was a prominent leading figure uh, in that society. In the second half of our chapter, I don't know whether you noticed it, striking, isn't it, that Jethro's response to Moses Uh, In this amazing new situation, he finds himself in as the leader of Israel with these 600,000 men uh, that he's uh, bringing with him. Jethro's not dumbfounded by that, is he? His first response is advice. So he clearly has some experience of managing large large groups of people. He's not phased. He's uh, confident, articulate, used to responsibility. And uh, he's not just a passive spectator in the religious life of Midian either, is he? We're told that he's a priest. So presumably he's leading his people routinely in the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, some of these characters that we see later on in the story of Israel and Canaan. So we have to ask ourselves, what kind of interaction is this between Moses and his father-in-law? What kind of message is it that Moses intended to send? Well, the answer, I think, comes in the way that Moses chooses to do it. Moses chooses to send his wife and sons to Jethro. And in his account of what happened, it seems that he artfully let the names of his sons do the talking. At this point in the narrative, Moses chooses to tell us that his firstborn son was named Gershom. He says, "Um, because I have become a foreigner in a foreign land, Gershom means foreigner there. And his second son was named Eliezer. Strictly that means God is my help. Um, And uh, he said, uh, it tells us in our text, that my father's God was my helper and he saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. That's what those names meant to Moses. And I don't think it's an accident that he chooses to tell us that right here because uh, the names of Moses' sons in the story um, kind of capture the content of the message that Moses wanted to send to Jethro. Gershon's name uh, would surely have reminded Jethro of Moses' first meeting with him. Surely Moses, uh, sorry, uh, sure Moses might now be standing at the head of this army of 600,000 guys. But when he and Jethro first met 40 years previously, Moses was a fugitive, wasn't he? And he found a welcome among people who were supposed to be his enemies. And Jethro was the man who extended that welcome to him. 
And you can't help wondering whether Moses uh, isn't now trying to offer that same kind of welcome back to Jethro. Because now the shoe's on the other foot, isn't it? He might be saying, you know, now from your perspective, you may feel like an outsider with this big army of Israelites in your space. But my God is the kind of God who wants all his people to come to that realization that they are really outsiders. Uh, Despite all your connections in Midian, despite all the things that you've done that have opposed our God, you don't have to fear us. There's a place for you here if you want it. And Eliezer's name, I think, then offers Jethro the reason to agree, the reason to buy into this unlikely plan. God is my helper, is what Moses is saying to his father-in-law there. And uh, Moses clearly saw a manifestation of that, didn't he, in the way that they'd just been sprung from uh, slavery in Egypt. Moses wanted Jethro to grasp that fact that God is someone who can step into the impossible situation and make it right. And Jethro clearly gets it because in verse 10 he repeats exactly that same information back to Moses when they meet he said God rescued you from the land of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh Moses reaches out here to his Midianite father-in-law encouraging him to trust God and he does in fact when he arrives in the camp of the Israelites and gets the chance to hear about everything that God has done for them from Moses own lips Uh, He responds, I think, with one of the most beautiful exclamations of faith that we find anywhere in the Bible. Bear in mind, this is Jethro, the priest of Midian. It's kind of a striking, isn't it? Can you imagine it? This is the guy who's been leading his people in the worship of all sorts of ghastly things for years on end. But now he comes out blessing God and saying, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and you rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Isn't that wonderful and kind of amazing? But that's not all. Right there then in the camp of the Israelites, Jethro presents a burnt offering and a series of other sacrifices to God, presumably on this new altar, the Lord is my banner. Right on the spot, he turns from being a priest of Midian to being a priest of the living God. And just as Gershom's name promised, he too finds a home and a welcome among those who ought to have been his enemies. The text tells us that Aaron came with all the elders of Israel and they ate a meal with Moses' father-in-law in in the presence of God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a picture of God's kingdom when it comes? And that, I think, is the first big lesson that's here for us in this text. Because this absolutely is a picture of of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that we ourselves are part of if we trust him. Just as we saw in chapter 17, God is acting out the truth about himself here in chapter 18. God is a God who blesses us so that we can bless others. Even the most unlikely people, this is the way it always works. The redemption that Israel experienced And the redemption that Moses himself experienced in particular became just a natural platform to share that news of redemption with his uh, father-in-law, didn't it? wonder whether you saw that in verse 10, where Jethro recalls Moses' words. uh, And it clearly struck Jethro, obviously, that God had saved this enormous group of people from the hand of the Egyptians. But that wasn't the only thing that captured his attention. Not only did God rescue the people from the hand of the Egyptians, says Jethro, but God also rescued you, Moses. Just as well taught us so helpfully, so powerfully from uh, chapter 15 a few weeks ago. 
Moses had his own song of deliverance to sing when he reached the other side of the Reed Sea, didn't he? And now we get to see what happened when he sung it. It became someone else's song. When his father-in-law heard what God had done in Moses' life, he ended up singing too. Not just for Moses, but for himself. When Jethro heard about God's victory over the gods of Egypt, it sounded the note of victory over the gods that he had been bowing down to for the longest time. The blessing that God had worked in Moses' life became a blessing at work in his own life. And that's how the gospel spreads. Throughout the story of the Bible, when people find themselves rescued by God and accepted as his people, They find themselves uh, launched towards the place that he always made them for. Uh, They find themselves enjoying his presence and understanding, uh, surrendering to his rule over them. Uh, They want to pass it on. It's no accident that sending this message to Jethro is the very first thing it seems that Moses does when he crosses over the water on dry land. God's work has this inherent inner energy uh, to replicate itself in other people. Telling others is just a natural response to what God has done for us. And just as that was true for Moses, it's true for us. And that message on Exodus 15, uh, Will asked us how many of us could raise a hand for a relative or friend who uh, we would just long to uh, have hear that message of redemption. And I imagine that just like me, many of you were saying yes with all your hearts inside Well, now we discover that Moses was saying yes as well. Moses sent his wife and sons to the man that he had on his heart, to the unbelieving father-in-law in whom he clearly had such faith in whom he he held in such high esteem, the man who had taken him into his family when he had no family of his own. And there are people in our lives like that today, aren't there? How many of us have a father-in-law or a mother-in-law or a mum or a dad or a brother or a sister or a dearly loved son or daughter who desperately needs to get this message of redemption into their life somehow. I know I do. Perhaps we've tried and prayed and we've exhausted every possible way we can think of to reach them with this good news. But from this text, I think we need to just hear that call again to bring these people before God and to find creative, sensitive ways to reach them if we can. So even though this isn't kind of strictly normal crossroads practice, I actually want to break off preaching here and get right to the application of that. Uh, So if you will, close your eyes, uh, and if it works for you, uh, raise that hand for the person or people in your life who you know that you would long to see uh, be Jethro in your story. And pray with me. God, you have placed this gospel in us too Lord we look back and see a crossing of the Red Sea in our own lives and just like Moses then we can't be content just to sit here knowing what you've done for us while these people that we care about so deeply don't know it and God maybe for those of us who've been doing this for a long time you know that there's then a kind of burnout how we've longed and longed for so long and prayed and prayed and God we just offer that back to you now We see the way that you placed Jethro on Moses' heart. And so we want to bring before you those that you have placed on our hearts. We need your help, God. 
Would you give us sensitivity like you gave Moses? It's so striking in the story that he thinks about just the right way to do this, to send his wife and the boys. He knows that that's going to prick Jethro's heart. Give us wisdom, uh, how we might uh, put the gospel in just a gentle, sensitive, but effective way in front of the people who uh, we love and know. We pray, God, that these people might find that Gershom in the truth in the, uh, in the church of God. We pray that they might find a welcome and a home and a place where they least expect it. Maybe they would never see themselves in a church like this. And yet I pray, God, we pray there'd be people here in six months or a year's time who we're praying for now, who would find a home and a family here, even though it would seem so improbable now. We pray that these people might find Eliezer in you, God. Pray that they might discover that they have a helper, that they don't have to go through this life alone. God, you know that we are often fumbling with this. Uh, We don't find it easy to do. But would you relight this fire in us because we long, God, to see our friends and relatives respond as Jethro did. And we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Take those prayers back with you. You know, the first half of this passage, I think, is just begging us to get on our knees for the people who God has placed around us. So let's press on now into the second part of our text and see what God has for us in this maybe more well-known story of the advice that Jethro offered to Moses. Uh, Once again, uh, the situation is one that we can probably picture. Uh, In the first part of our text, when Jethro arrives... Uh, The focus is very tightly focused on Jethro and Moses and the elders of Israel, isn't it? They're really the characters in the story. So you can imagine Jethro and Moses uh, sitting, talking together earnestly in Moses' tent. Uh, You can imagine Jethro's sacrifices maybe on this newly built altar. Uh, You can imagine Jethro dining in the evening with the elders of Israel out under the stars. But the following day, uh, we have to picture Jethro waking up for the very first time as someone who truly knows uh, the God who made him. And he opens up the flap of his tent and suddenly he can see the vast scale of what it is that this God he's just started believing in is truly doing. 600,000 men with their families spread out in tents before him. And as he works his way through the camp uh, towards the place of meeting at the centre, I think he realises why it is he hasn't seen his host so far that morning. Uh, Because Moses is back in position now, isn't he, doing his day job, providing guidance for the inexperienced Israelites about how to live and please the Lord. Dealing with the inevitable quarrels that arise in a campground that houses a million people. I can see sage nods from those of you who go camping. Uh, and um, deciding between the parties when things get to the point where there's an actual dispute. But it's not just Moses that Jethro sees up there in the middle of the camp, is it, as he approaches it. No, the thing that strikes him most is the line of people waiting. You can almost picture that too, can't you? Moses uh, moving as rapidly as possible through each case, and Joshua perhaps holding up a big sign that says, thank you for coming, Uh, your dispute is important to us. Uh, Unfortunately, we're experiencing unusually high call volumes right now. Uh, The wait time is approximately 8 hours and 30 minutes. Uh, You can log on to www.moses.gov to look at our helpful list of frequently asked questions uh, or something like that. This then is the context in which we get our uh, uh, second uh, interaction between Moses and Jethro. Uh, 
Jethro, it seems, finds a suitable break in the action and uh, he sidles up to Moses and asks whether they can talk for a minute. And verse 14 records what he said. He says, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Because the people come to me to seek God's will, says Moses. Whenever they have a dispute, it gets brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. But then we get Jethro's telling, biting reply. What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Now there's clearly a dose of uh, a pragmatic good sense in this, isn't there? And that's no bad thing. Uh, God has given us good sense. He certainly wants us to use it. Jethro seems to have got some experience of leadership in Midian. He's doubtless bringing that wisdom to bear on Moses' new role now. There's never obviously been a society on the whole earth that hasn't managed to survive a minister or hasn't uh, uh, had some kind of measure of delegation in it in order to survive administratively. Uh, Jethro sees unsustainability, uh, signs kind of flashing red, and um, uh, he encourages Moses to change his approach. But there's more to this, isn't there, than just mere good sense. Did you catch the echo of it in the words that Jethro chooses to use? He says, what you are doing is not good. It's not good for a man to overwork himself. This is only the second time in the Bible that that rare Hebrew construction gets used. Uh, The first time is in the Garden of Eden when God says to Adam, it's not good for a man to be alone. So this comment from Jethro has the ring of a divine pronouncement to it, doesn't it? God is speaking loud and clear through his newly converted Midianite priest here. And like the pronouncement that um, God makes in the garden, this one too carries a blessing with it. God's diagnosis of what was not good in Adam's life in the Garden of Eden marked the beginning of the end of his loneliness, didn't it? God solved the problem of Adam's aloneness by giving him a partner. And so it is here as well. Jethro's diagnosis of what is not good in Moses' model of leadership marks the beginning of the end of his unmanageable workload and all of its negative consequences, I guess, for him and for his people. God is going to give Moses partners too. Uh, So do you see here in our text that God takes overwork extremely seriously. We might think that overwork is actually no big deal. We might actually think it's something to kind of celebrate uh, as a a sign of energy and commitment. Um, You know, if we work all the hours that God sends and some that he doesn't. Uh, But even the hours, even if those hours that we spend glued to our laptops uh, have a big impact on us and on our families, um, perhaps we don't see it as a spiritual issue You know, it's not the kind of thing we expect to come to church and hear about on a Sunday. But the way this passage is set up with that allusion back to Genesis 2, God seems to disagree with us, doesn't he? God seems to think that overwork is a deeply spiritual issue. God seems to think it's a creational issue, like loneliness is a distortion of our God-given identity. It embraces something that we were never made to be. 
And so here in our text, it's as if God takes Moses back to the beginning and he pulls the user manual for human existence back down off the shelf and he helps him get his head around the biblical picture of work-life balance. In God's mind, overwork should be the trigger to get other people involved in our lives. And when we see others who are overworked, it should be a trigger for us to move towards them and help them out, right? You see, God is not half so interested as we are in what one heroic individual can achieve unaided. God made us for relationship with himself and with other people. And work is one of the most important places where that blessing can be found. Are we good at something? God doesn't want us to bury ourselves in it so thoroughly that we end up buried under it. God wants us to find and train up other people so that they can share it with us, so that they can do it too. And God isn't impressed either with the logic that says, if I work three times harder than the next guy, I can earn three times what the next guy earns. From God's perspective, do you get that's all loss? We kill ourselves and deprive our, families of our pres- deprive our families of our presence to make so much money that it actually becomes a snare to us. And in the process, we deny ourselves the blessing of working with the next guy and getting to know the next guy and investing in him and seeing him rise up to take our place one day. And that's the blessing that God lays out here for Moses. That is what we were made to do. Through Jethro, God says, it's not good for you to lead alone, Moses. And he opens Moses' eyes up then to the uh, possibilities for partnership that exists in the community all around him. Moses is still going to retain his special role as the people's representative before God. But now God wants him to function, doesn't he, as a kind of supreme court for the difficult cases, uh, with circuit courts underneath him, staffed by trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain who can learn from him and deal with the less challenging cases themselves. Notice also that Moses is encouraged to turn himself into a teacher here. Back in verse 15, we saw him counselling people one-on-one in exhaustive detail, helping them discern God's will for their lives individually. But now Jethro advises him to teach people God's decrees and laws so that they can discern his will for themselves. And once again, that looks back to creation. God didn't make us with intelligence and with the ability to work things out and make rational choices just so that we could sit back and let other people tell us what to do. God gave us brains because he wants us to use them. And Moses needs to lead in a manner that believes that and reflects that. And this all makes sense for Moses, doesn't it? But I think the Bible wants us to see that it also makes sense for us. Jump forward to the New Testament And you'll find Luke quoting the words that Jethro speaks here to Moses in his description of the appointment of the uh, deacons in Jerusalem in Acts 6. Do you remember that? It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, says Peter. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Delegation. In 2 Timothy, Paul urges his protege to follow the same approach. And uh, uh, the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, he says, entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others themselves. Believe me, I'm preaching to myself here. When we're overworked, and I mean overworked like Moses was, so that we're in danger of making overwork a life pattern, 
things need to change. We need to get a better we need to get better at asking for help. We need to get better at receiving help. Isn't Moses gracious with that? How many of us would take the advice of our father-in-law just as well as he does here in this text? We need to get better at sharing out our responsibilities and investing in others who can bear them in our place. We need to shed the pride that says the only way that's worth doing this job is my way because I'm indispensable. Because as my pastor when I was a student used to tell me, the graveyards sadly are full of indispensable people. We need to get over ourselves and accept God's diagnosis here as the gateway to his blessing. Now for some of us, uh, I imagine our hearts are still telling us, well, um, you know, working harder and longer is the way to be truly happy. Well, God has a step of faith for you to take today. God is looking at you and telling you, you are flat wrong. It's not good for a man or woman to drown under an impossible load of responsibility, says God. God wants you to get into partnership with people who can help you and uh, uh, who you can help by sharing your life with them, sharing your expertise with them. God wants us to bear each other's burdens, not just figuratively, but literally. But that's not quite the end of our journey here through this passage in Exodus 18. Uh, I hope all of us have seen there's a lot for us to learn from Moses in this text. Uh, from his willingness to testify to Jethro about his experience of God's deliverance. Wasn't that great? Um, From his willingness to listen to God's guidance about his excessive workload. Um, But just as we saw in Exodus 17, there's also a tension in this passage, isn't there, uh, between Moses the man uh, setting us an example to follow, uh, but then also Moses the model uh, pointing forwards and upwards to what God will one day do. Certainly we see Moses the man in our text, uh, you know, just like we did on the mountaintop with his upraised arms, you know, with Aaron and her coming to his aid. But we uh, uh, see a ton of Moses the model here in our text as well. On the mountaintop when uh, Moses' hands were lifted up in prayer, the course of the battle turned. But now in our text, uh, we're told that uh, Moses is this person to whom people can come to learn the will of God. Uh, he's a person who's going to be their representative before God. That God will somehow treat all of them according to the status of his relationship with Moses. That stuff is strictly supernatural, isn't it? And the Bible wants us to realise that we still need that stuff today too. For all the great lessons that uh, these chapters teach us about Moses the man finding support in his weakness as a prayer and as a leader, we still need someone to fill the shoes of Moses the model in our lives. When work life or home life or health or friendships are a battle, maybe even a losing battle, we still need someone up on the mountaintop praying for us with his arms held high, don't we? Someone who won't grow weary, someone who won't let his guard over us fall. And when we have questions like uh, the Israelites did in our text about God's will for our lives, when we uh, need someone to... uh, Uh, give wisdom uh, to help us resolve the disputes we fall into, when we need help to understand God's word. We still need someone to go to who won't collapse under the strain, don't we? We need someone who we can appeal to, who will hear us and not just send us to the back of the line to wait. And those needs will never be fulfilled if our hope rests on people like us, will they? Moses was an extraordinary individual, 
But not even he can meet the needs of his people alone. And the same thing is true now. Uh, In this last week, I guess many of us were saddened to hear of the death of the great South African statesman Nelson Mandela. What a man he was. What a great leader. What a great picture of patience and forgiveness. What an amazing peacemaker. But not even Nelson Mandela could meet the individual needs of his people, could he? Great though he was, it wasn't possible for ordinary South Africans just to pick up the phone and call Nelson and get his advice on the trials that they were facing with their marriages or with their neighbours. Nelson Mandela couldn't raise his hands and turn his people's fortune simply by the power of his prayers. However much he would have liked to do those things, like Moses, Nelson Mandela couldn't do them. However real the needs of each uh, person in his country were, however pivotal his involvement in those needs might indeed have been, like Moses, he wasn't able to meet them or to even offer that kind of involvement. The burden of leading and providing for every person under his care was beyond him, astronomically beyond him. And the same could be said for all of history's other great leaders except one. 1,500 years after the events that we read about today, the Bible tells us the story of another great leader, a great delegator and trainer, man after Moses' own heart. And yet there comes a moment in his story where the paths that he and Moses walked diverge radically. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where the help that he most desperately needed deserted him, and when he was left completely alone, to bear the burden that we've just been talking about, and not just the day-to-day needs of this obscure kind of Middle Eastern tribe on the run from Egypt, but the needs and the hopes and the fears and the guilt of all humanity for all time. Alone he raised his hands to turn the tide of that battle in our favour, and alone his hands remained upraised until that battle was won. This passage in Exodus awakens this kind of fundamental need in us, doesn't it? It speaks to the longing that God has poured into all of our hearts, uh, even from the point when we were very first created, uh, a longing for, for something, for someone greater than us, someone kind enough and powerful enough to actually change things, someone who can take an interest in us and care for us, who will be there for us when all other things fail. In our story today, it was Moses, weak, fallible human Moses, who got to play that part. But the really important thing is where that kind of amateur dramatic production is pointing. You see, in his kindness, God didn't just uh, give us that textbook entitled Everything You Need to Know About You and Me. He acted out the truth about who he is and how he planned to save us in human history, like the story we read. God gave Moses the role that he plays in this text in our Bibles, to highlight the aching need that each of us has for a shepherd, for a captain, for a master, for a friend, who can offer that individual knowledge and kindness to all of us and to show us that the need is met in Christ and Christ alone. In the struggles of life, Jesus' hands are raised in prayer over us and he will not tire or fail us. Every one of us can bring our daily needs to him in intimate detail. All of us overlapping with each other, all kind of at the same time in our own places, in our own spaces. Isn't that kind of weird and amazing? 
to me as we walk this journey back to Oxford, it seems as if he's kind of clearing his calendar every day just to think specifically about the needs of my own family. And yet I know that's true for every one of us, isn't it? And if we trust him today, uh, we are his and he is ours. He can do what no other human leader can do. He can meet that need. He can meet us there as we bring it to him. And uh, that's an amazing hope. So let's pray now and uh, commit ourselves to him. Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful passage of the Bible and thank you just for your artistry um, in the, the authoring of human history that you would have it be this, that actually these stories which are so accessible to us that we can visualise, that we can picture what it would even be like to be there, that those are the things that speak to us of our need and that speak to us of the meeting of that need. God, I can't imagine there's a single one of us who could read that story of the Amalekites with that great leader on the hill praying his guts out, thinking, oh, if only that were, if that were for me. If only in the battle that I'm facing down here on the plain, if only there was one who was praying that over me. And as we think about Moses in the camp, maybe that's more how it seems. We have all these needs, but we're at the back of some long line. And if we truly were waiting for a mere human, however well-intentioned, that would be all that we had. But thank you, God, that this story teaches us that's not all we have. We have a leader who loves us, who knows us, who could hear every individual prayer being prayed in this room as if it was the only thing that was happening. We can't understand how you do it, but we bless you, Jesus, that you do it. Thank you that your hands are raised in prayer over the battles of our lives. Thank you that we can look to the hills and see where our hope comes from. It's standing there with hands raised. So we pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to trust him. Help us to uh, walk following him. Help us to have that confidence of knowing that we are watched over and cared for. And God, I pray that that great good news would then just bubble up and out of us into the lives of those that we love. We ask it for his glory. Amen. Thank you.